Today, on Give a Fuck. Advertising is comedy, and for me, parallel between my work and selling a joke is undoubtful. Lightning round. Uh, who is your favorite comedian if you have one? Uh, I'd say James Acaster. Favorite brand? I really like Paddy Power. I prepared four of improv games for us to play. <laughs> so this is supposed to really like push us the topic to like extreme nonsense, but your job is to make it even more nonsensical. It's okay to fail because no one cares. It's improv. You're, you're trying. One, two, one, two. Ahoy. Bonjour. Ciao. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Give a Fuck, a podcast exploring what matters in culture, media, advertising, and whatever else we feel like discussing. David Ogilvy said, the best ideas come as jokes. And I guess he was right. Advertising is comedy. A stand-up comedy, to be exact. And for me, working in planning and brand strategy, the parallel between my work and telling a joke is undoubtful. Being a big fan of stand-up myself, I came to think that really, the process behind is the same. The way you need to make a joke land is exactly the same as the way you need to make a strategy work. A good strategy work. Having read more about the topic on various blogs and online media dedicated to planning and strategy, I now know I'm not the only one thinking that. Hi, my name is Jake and welcome to yet another episode of Give a Fuck Podcast. Today's episode is called Advertising is a Joke. Give a fuck. But what exactly is this peril I am talking about? Well, let's take a deeper look into it. Simon from JuniorStrategy.com says that a lot of challenges and processes behind stand-up comedy are indeed similar to those of a strategist. It's because a lot of comedy is based on observation of human behavior, pinpointing things that are hidden but recognizable and then bringing them alive in a way that captures our imagination. It's all about structuring the story, using proper techniques, using the right imagery and above all, it's about knowing your audience, what makes them laugh, what makes them interested. We both have to answer the same question. Why should they care about my joke? Why should they care about my advert? We both use symbolism in the same way. We both need to create engaging content that resonates and for that, we use the same kind of mental tools. But one thing that good jokes and good strategy have in common, the deepest of them all, is that they both dwell on good insights, unique human insights and behaviors. Now, dating is difficult. Black people and white people are different. Also, airplane food is unacceptable. Yes. That's three jokes in five seconds. This is awesome. In a talk of four comedians you can find on YouTube, Louis C.K., Jerry Seinfeld, Ricky Gervais, and Chris Rock, the topic of human insights comes up. All of them agree on two distinctive things. First of all, none of them like easy jokes. If anyone else can come up with that joke, 
it's probably not that good. Jokes have been ruined by people who aren't good at telling jokes. A joke should never end with, I'm joking. Secondly, when they look for their unique approach, they often look for human behavior that most of us recognize but do not talk about. And there you have it, a step-by-step -step process of making good strategy based on good insights. I love advertising because I love lying. Our first guest is Matt Box. Not only Matt is a fellow planner and strategist from London, he's also an official part-time stand-up comedian. Thanks so much for finding time to, I don't know, to talk to me. <laughs> oh no, thanks for getting in touch. It's something I'm always interested in talking about. So I was preparing this episode um, because I was me personally a bit passionate about it because I love theater and I used to be like a child actor and I used to love doing all these drama things. And then, you know, then so and that's exactly how I came across your article. I was researching the topic uh, online and I stumbled across what you wrote for Contagious called What Brands Can Learn From Stand-Up Comedy. And I find it really, really true. It was really resonating within me. And I think it's um, definitely true for the industry. But maybe before we talk about the article and the nitty gritty of it, uh, could you just maybe give us like a little to our listeners, a little roundup of who you are, what you do, where you come from? Yeah, great. Uh, so my name is Matt Box. Uh, I'm a senior strategist at an experiential agency called George P. Johnson. Uh, but in my spare time, I like to do, write and perform stand-up comedy. Uh, so it's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, before the pandemic, I'd uh, be doing several gigs a week uh, to kind of decent-sized audiences and testing nice. out new material, really. Oh, cool. And so how did, you, how did you find your way into comedy? Was it after advertising or before or from advertising into comedy? What was your journey to get into being a part-time stand-up comedian? Um, so for me, um, uh, stand-up was something I had a real passion for as a kind of teenager. I used to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is kind of a big festival in Scotland. Uh, lots of stand-up comedians there. Um, and it's a really good place for comedy. It's got a real kind of culture in the city during the month of August. Um, and then from there, a, uh, a friend of mine did a stand-up competition when I was at university that I was kind of too scared to do myself. Uh, and he, I kind of teased him about kind of how his set had gone because he hadn't done very well in this competition. And he was like, you can't judge unless you've done it. You can't say anything about it. I don't care about your opinion about stand-up comedy until you've done it at least once. And that was always in the back of my mind. Uh, and then I used to work with a guy called John Fraser, uh, who now, uh, starts his own agency called, uh, he started his own agency called Troublemaker and he used to do stand-up as well. You you said there are three things that advertising and comedy have in common, three lessons that advertising or brands should take from stand-up comedy. The first one was owning the prejudice, I think. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? What was what was the name? Uh, I'm never quite sure how what, what to call it, but I think own the prejudice is definitely the term I used in that talk. Uh, I always think it's like taking a negative perception and kind of uh, owning it. So you uh, take control of what uh, maybe a consumer is already thinking in stand-up comedy sense is what the audience might be thinking about you. 
Um, and so there's a, a good example, I think is uh, Jo Brand, who's a, a famous comedian in the UK. And she's quite like a, uh, a large woman who's like very famous in kind of the 80s. So it's very kind of sexist audiences. She'd always make a joke about her weight at the beginning of her set. So it's almost, so no heckler could make a better fat joke than she could. And she yeah. kind of owned that prejudice at the beginning. And then suddenly like the audience is at ease uh, and they kind of know that she knows what, what she looks like. It's like a self-awareness thing, uh, but it's also kind of, um, it helps you not come across as too kind of arrogant. Uh, it's a bit of self-deprecation at the beginning. Uh, and there's a, a theory uh, called the pratfall effect, which uh, a lot of kind of psychologists use, which is that you, you like someone who kind of has a flaw, like a, a clear flaw. Uh, or is maybe kind of less perfect than someone else, they're more likable as a result. And brands can do this. Like a good example I used in my talk was uh, Super Bowl, uh, a Super Bowl Radio Shack ad, uh, where they talked about kind of, oh, you know, the the 80s call, they want their store back. And there's all these kind of 80s characters kind of uh, refurbishing a shop, essentially, to show that the brand has come, they're not stuck in the past anymore. They're kind of a modern shop. I think that's, it's really important for brands that have maybe messed up or they have a negative perception to really own that perception and go, we know you think this about us, but you're wrong. There's definitely something in this, um, I would maybe call it admitting your flaws or admitting your imperfections at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I think it was also in the um, John Haggerty book, Haggerty on Advertising, and, they, and he said that every time he went for a presentation, the opening slide would be like a little joke or a little icebreaker, which admits what they didn't know as the agency or as a creative team. And they admitted the flaw that they're going to have in their presentation and immediately it made the clients like them a lot more. Yeah. So I need to I need to remember this again when next time I'm presenting. Definitely. The, the, the second lesson you also mentioned was the letting the audience do the work. And I think this is quite a common one that maybe many advertisers know already, but you had some good points there as well. Yeah, I, mean, I always think don't tell people you're funny, tell them a joke. And like, I think brands are always guilty of telling people that they're kind of interesting or good and it's kind of like prove it uh, rather than just kind of telling me or kind of over explaining yourself. Uh, and I think people quite like to fill in the blank. So if you leave kind of a little bit of work for someone to do uh, mentally, they'll kind of remember it more. Um, I think there's definitely some psychology behind that as well. The example I use from stand-up is that Jerry Seinfeld talks about Evil can evil jumping a cliff or like a, a canyon. So it's like a guy on a motorbike, he needs to uh, jump from one side of a cliff to the other side. And that's what a joke is like. So if you make that, that canyon, that gap too wide, then uh, you give the audience too much to think about. They'll, they won't get a joke so that you've You'll collapse, you'll, the evil can evil, the little motorcyclist, the joke just collapses in the middle of this canyon. It's too much of a mental stretch. Uh, but at the same time, if you make that too small, too small a gap and you over explain your joke or kind of your brand message, uh, then it's not impressive that you could just step over. It's not, there's no kind of surprise there. There's no kind of interesting thing to remember for the audience. Uh, there's not, nothing to work out for them. The last point was flipping the argument, which I liked probably the most of yeah. all three. 
And so this is something that I think is really key for a lot of stand-up comedians is like there is a maybe a normal argument uh, that happens in kind of like everyday life and it's uh, the more creative option is to kind of flip the argument like what's what's another take on this and so like when I ended up working in advertising when I applied for a graduate scheme uh, at Ogilvy and the reason I'd heard of Ogilvy was because of Rory Sutherland's TED talk and in his TED talk, he talked about uh, a case study, uh, which is kind of uh, where there was nothing interesting changed about the products, but it was a reframing. So it was uh, shreddies, you were kind of square, 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 and he says diamond shreddies, and they changed the packaging, and it's just the same products, but at a slightly different angle. I thought that was really original, clever. You know, you flip the argument, you don't need to kind of, uh, Say anything new about the product but you've, you've, you've reframed it and you've made it kind of more interesting and i since found out that the creative that worked on that work was a stand-up comedian kind of also paying the bills doing some advertising work um so i think that's like a really common way that uh a stand-up comedian would go this is what everyone else thinks and maybe slightly contrarian like what about a different angle so the example i used in my talk was uh, a comedian called finn taylor and he prides himself on, on being both sides of the political spectrum. So he'll kind of make fun of the left and the right. And he says, you hear the argument, well, if you had to kill the animal yourself, kind of talking about veganism, uh, you'd feel a lot differently about eating the meat. That works both ways, vegan. Like if you had to actually fly to Mexico to rip off an avocado yeah. farmer to his face. And I just think that's such an interesting, like I'd never thought of something that way to look into the, you know, the details of the agriculture that would be quite difficult. Um, and I think a lot of my favourite creative work kind of just takes a different, the opposite angle almost of what everyone else would be doing. So there's a really nice example of uh, Sprint in the US, which is like a telephone provider, like a telco. And instead of saying that they were half the price, they said that their main competitor was twice the price, which I think is so much more like angled and kind of direct and kind of makes them look so much worse than kind of just saying we're well, half price which just you ignore you assume everyone tells you they're half price so there's some trick but telling yeah. you that the person you might be at is twice the price is so much more interesting and stands out more do you think because you mentioned you have a few friends that are the people that you know they are also um, they also work in advertising and also dabble in the stand-up comedy do you think this is a usual convo of being an advertising professional slash stand-up comedian or slash actor slash improv enthusiast yeah i mean something i really like about advertising in the wider kind of creative industries is quite often it attracts interesting people who are kind of uh i did some research into the graduate scheme when I was at Ogilvy and it kind of attracts wanderers we said like, like people that kind of maybe not quite sure what they wanted to do at university just yeah. study something they're passionate about and then maybe kind of had gone between different careers weren't quite sure what they wanted to do and kind of ended up in advertising and it kind of suits uh, a curious mind a kind of slightly uh, ADHD or kind of hard to concentrate on one thing kind of brain uh, and I think it's also kind of a little bit to do with fame and entertainment and it's kind of showbiz and it all, it's all linked to that kind of world but maybe the slightly more corporate side of it all right well i have a little game at the end um that we can play there's a lightning yeah. round lightning round 
just to get like some stuff out of you. Uh, who is your favorite comedian if you have one? Uh, I'd say James A. Caster. Uh, favorite comedy film? I'm going to go clueless. <laughs> favorite, favorite book? There's Stuart Lee's done a great book called My Life's and Deaths. Favorite brand? I really like Paddy Power in the UK. Favorite advert? I used to work on a pizza brand. It's called Little Caesars. And there's one advert they did called No Rules. And last one is SNL or Mad TV? I'd say SNL because it just cut through to my, uh, you know, my, uh, the stuff I watch online. Why should people give a fuck about comedy and advertising? I mean, I think advertising and kind of working in brands, your job is always to kind of get noticed, to be remembered. And that uh, the biggest crime that you can make is to be forgettable and to be kind of unentertaining as a brand. Like there's nothing worse than kind of uninteresting. I think I always think that as a kind of a person at a dinner party or something like to be boring is kind of like the worst insult you could throw at me. Uh, and I think that's true of stand-up comedy. Like you don't want to be the person that everyone forgot. Like, oh, what did they, what jokes did they do? I don't remember. And the same with brands. Like you don't want to be like, oh, what do they do? I'm not really sure. Um, you want to be remembered and you want to entertain people. I think you should try and do that as a person. I think that's a, a good way to live your life. Uh, and I think uh, certainly for brands, that's what agencies should be doing uh, for marketers. We should be kind of making brands more interesting, more memorable. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So thanks so much for coming to this little improv performance piece that we are preparing for our podcast. We have Juan, Sarah, Noel, and Daniel, and myself playing improv games. Um, I prepared four or improv games for us to play. The whole idea is that um, we believe, I believe that the mechanic and uh, the atmosphere of improv and stand-up comedy is really similar to the mechanic of advertising. And it's really important for us to understand this this little world of playing and gaming in order to be better at our job. So with that, I'm going to start with the first game that's uh, specially designed for Zoom, which is called Panel of Experts, this game. So we are going to be pretending we are a panel of experts. And this is based on one of the one of the major rules of improv and also the major rules of creative concepting, which is agree and add, the yes and rule. Because if you're working with somebody creatively, you need to agree with them and make it even better and make the idea even crazier. So if I say we're going to talk about um, glasses, then Sarah said, yes, glasses were invented in 1805. And Juan says, that's right. And the first person who invented them was called John. And Noel says, that's right. And his wife was actually pregnant. And David, uh, Daniel says, that's right. And her child was, I don't know, had two hats. Sounds pretty much how we sell ideas to clients. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so welcome to the news show. The, today's topic is going to be glass bottles. And we have actually four experts who are very well versed in the topic of glass bottles. 
Sarah Roach is one of them. Juan Leguizamon is here to talk to us about his expertise in glass bottles. Noel Tatil and Daniel Azar. Welcome so much to our show about glass bottles. So Sarah, why don't you start with what you have to say? Thank you, glass bottles. I mean, what an exciting topic, right? So I'm not sure if you're all aware, but the first glass bottle was actually discovered in an Egyptian tomb. That's exactly right. Uh, also to add to that, it wasn't just discovered, but it is said that aliens brought it to that region as a way to uh, capture souls inside these uh, glass bottles. Uh, they invented plastic before, but they decided uh, um, glass was more trendy for the Egyptians. So in that sense, it was like not only a great invention, but also a good treasure that had to be discovered. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's, it's funny that you should say that because uh, when the Egyptians uh, used these glass bottles to kind of capture stoles, uh, that's actually the first time where, you know, the, the idea of a, of a bottleneck came into being where because, you know, and then they, the, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've heard. That's, uh, that's actually right. And the thing is, it was a really difficult transition to kind of start storing water in them rather than souls. And you might think that this transition is like weird, but no, it is. it has something to do with the flow. And they believe that the soul flowed throughout the cosmos. And this is why that was like directly an interpretation of water. So they said, all right, then water has the same kind of movement as the soul. So let's store it as well in these glass bottles. Yes, that's... That's right. And um, so actually the, the aliens, what's funny about about that is that the water is actually not, it was in glass bottles, but bottles as we know it, they didn't have circles yet. The aliens only had triangles. So all of the bottles were triangle shaped. That's exactly right. I mean, also in a recent report uh, online, I think it was uh, Q and on where they actually confirmed that the bottles were actually triangular because um, it was easy for them to drink the souls. But not only for that, I mean, uh, I mean, beyond bottles, I mean, they did the spectacular objects back then just to, you know, celebrate festivals. The, the Egyptian alien festival, uh, it was pretty much like Coachella, but, you know, it, it's, instead of music, it, it was more like... Um, uh, festival of lights. Uh, absolutely right, Juan. I mean, uh, that festival of of uh, of lights, which they for which they use these glass bottles. They, it was uh, it's said to have been the first time uh, disco was invented because as light passed through these glass bottles and created a spectrum of colors, that's when the Egyptians kind of discovered that you know there is there's something psychedelic about the world and like and all its multiple colors and and that spectrum is 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 has kind of been the foundation for disco uh, over the years it is um, absolutely right uh, noel and uh, i think that um, the triangular shape um, has helped um, helped us a lot even in modern days um, and it has like some, some sort of um, kind of repercussions. And the first one that we can see is on our chocolate. And one, one, of, um, one of the most iconic chocolate bars have a triangular shape. And this kind of reinforces the, the point that 
um, working with light and the disco ball and like all this feeling of joy and, and, and happiness that, that these bring kind of translate also into the iconic chocolate bar. Thank you so right. much. <laughs> that sounds great. So this is supposed to this is supposed to really like push your creativity. Like you think like the person before you already pushed the topic to like extreme nonsense, but your job is to make it even more nonsensical. <laughs> I think it's good. And we have in front of us game number three. And this one is called Someone Tells This Part Better. Uh, this is something we can uh, all play. Any two people at any point start telling a story. Any other one of us can at any point of this story say, wait, 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 wait. Juan tells this part better. Sarah uh, tells this part better. And then, have to, and then the person you tag needs to continue this story and again, agree and add something crazier. And then the same thing goes on and on and on and on until we create a story that is probably a complete nonsense. Love it. Noel, why don't you start? Because you were not able to participate in the previous one. So now you have the, the privilege to create and set the pace for this story. All right. So, uh, oh my God, have you guys heard about uh, Brandt and his love for tuna? Like, it's insane. Like the other day he just went to a, a, a supermarket. I don't know, like Kaufland or like Edeka or whatever. And he bought all the tuna in the store, all of it. And then you know what he did with that? Wait, 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 wait. I think Sarah tells this part better. Yeah, you know what this joker did with all the tuna? You're not going to believe it. He ate only some of it, and then the rest he gave to his boss. But you know what? His boss wasn't even around. So all the tuna sat in his boss's office for three weeks until the boss came back from vacation. And guess what then? Wait, 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 wait. I think Daniel tells us part better. Yeah, what happened was that the boss, uh, as soon as he came into um, to the room, was hit by this horrible, horrible, horrible smell up to the point where he just fell on the ground and um, couldn't move anymore. So <clears throat> throughout the day, people were sending him emails uh, because he was supposed to be here um, this day and he wasn't replying and he was- Wait, uh, wait, wait. As, Juan tells this part better, he knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Actually, this is when it gets really critical. Um, so yeah, after uh, time has passed, uh, no reaction from uh, the boss. Um, and this is when he, you know, people starting to smell tuna. Uh, then they realize uh, he was dead, smelling like tuna. Uh, the police came, you know, uh, detectives uh, wrote in the notes that they actually smell of tuna is because of, I think, coming from like a fish sort of DNA uh, that was discovering his body. <clears throat> Therefore, wait, 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 wait. I can tell this part better, actually, because I know what happened because one of the detectives is my cousin and I was able to read the report and they actually found out that part of that boss's DNA was uh, made out of fish, was actually fish DNA. And when they went down his uh, his family line, they found out that his one of his great grandpas was a mermaid. And this is the real showstopper of this story. Wait, 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 wait! Noel tells us part better. Yeah. And do you know how Brandt found out all of this? So he was kind of doing a little bit of like snooping around on LinkedIn, trying to you know figure out like <laughs> what what his boss likes and stuff like that. And then he came across this one work experience in the aquarium. 
and like turns out like you know his boss's family owns an aquarium but secretly also lives there <laughs> uh <laughs> we're done here <laughs> i think so i think also we've been playing for one hour which is i mean there's also a cap on to how long you can do these things because then you really are exhausted but yeah. it is good because if you do this let's say if you do this with briefs <laughs> we can try doing this with some assignments when we do for the clients and see see where we go but also next time we have drink drinks at the office we can just play and be silly yeah yeah i think that's a good idea that was awesome thank you so much for participating i appreciate this this is always so much fun Give a fuck. My next guest is Jada Fogel, a Canadian actress turned marketing manager. I believe she has a lot to say about how improv techniques can actually improve our life, our work, and in the end, our careers. Where do you see the similarities between being an actor and working in advertising? Oh, there are so many. You deal with all kinds of disparate personalities and you have to get along with all of them. You have to put on a mask for every single person that you work with, whether they're a stakeholder or the agency themselves, like someone within your own agency or or the customer. And you you have to you have to learn to take feedback, which I think yes. is a big thing uh, in theater. When I was in advertising, it would be something like we'd we'd write something, we'd write, you know, 10, 12 different versions of it, show it to them and they go, "Actually, I like this and they would have just written something and hand it back to you and you go, "Oh, okay. I'll make what we did work with that." And yeah. then you go back and you redo everything and it's just it's that constant levels of, of of feedback and I think as an actor as an improviser you learn to be really flexible you learn to work beyond the constraints of a script and that's also something that's really important in advertising you have to be willing to change at the drop of a hat and you have to be willing to look at somebody else's ideas and say yes uh be willing to accept someone else's ideas and build on it and that's the the tenet of improv to me is is agreeing to what your partner says but building on it so that it's something more. Exactly, it's the it's the yes and rule. You agree and then you build on top of it and I think not in not only in advertising but I guess in life or in any profession you need to instead of fighting whatever's coming at you be it a feedback or projects or deadlines or I don't know what creating a vaccine you just need to sort of you know take the opportunity yeah. and like, go with it so to say. I, I quite really like it. As well, I think you're asking the customer to say yes, the consumer. So you're creating something and you're asking the consumer to say yes. So there's also that element of, okay, how do I create this positive, excellent experience that the customer then wants to also agree to? Is this is maybe if you think about like this this is more more of like very theoretical thing they have in common, but I think there is also a lot of other actual more tangible benefits of being good at improv or training improv and then working or living you know i think it makes you insanely flexible yes. it makes you really quick to adapt what do you think about these more um 
Agree, agree. And I think we said that a little bit before, but I think that flexibility, that adaptation in terms of your brain to be able to say, oh, yeah, I can do that. Have you thought of this? That oral brainstorming that comes out of improv, especially where you're just constantly jumping on everybody's ideas. You're constantly building it out. I think that is so important. And one of the other things with improv that I think is more tangible is it's repetition and learning to be quick. You're training your brain to always come up with a scenario, to always come up with an answer, to always come up with a solution. And that will, that will help you with advertising because if someone, if someone says, I don't, you know, I don't like that, you're like, great, how about this? And, and that is so important. That's, that goes back into the flexibility, but I think it also goes into finding creative problem solving is a tenant in broad. Yeah, because ultimately in, in advertising, we are trying to tell a story in 30 seconds and that story needs to have beginning and a little twist. It needs to be funny. It needs to feature the product. And it's very much like when I did one of the, the improv shows as a, uh, as a teenager and we had two minutes to come up with a story that's two minutes long that is inspired by this word, right? And the word is, or, or a sentence and it's whatever. So in a way you are doing an advert just a bit longer. You have limited time. And I think it's all about being efficient under time pressure in a way i i like that i think i think it's also so improv isn't integrally funny it's a little different from stand-up stand-up's always about finding the punchline and improv is about honesty and so is advertising and advertisement isn't going to emotionally or comedically affect the audience and the consumer if it doesn't have that element of truth And that element of truth is ultimately what improv is about. Humor comes from the audience looking at the actors and saying, oh, that, that could happen. That's funny and horrible, and I, but I could see it happening. It's so awkward. I feel it in myself. And the humor comes from, as an improviser, you see where that humor is and you gamify it. And it's the same thing with advertising. You find the honest piece of humor or the honest piece of emotion and you heighten it. And, and that's an integral link between the two. Yes. Uh, another thing that I recognize that helps me a lot is that's because I like it. I'm the kind of employee that loves to perform and I love to give presentations and inspiration sessions. And I thought everybody kind of loves it, but there are people that dread the moment they have to speak in front of more than five people yeah and i i, I think it's also a matter of, of comfort maybe in one of the one of the ways that i try to teach improv is to recognize that you can fail and that it's okay and i, I think it's about building those positive experiences advertising is about constantly failing the first idea is never the right idea it's sitting in a tiny room and just going back and forth and brainstorming with your art director or brainstorming with your creative director. You've got, you know, you've got a designer and you've got the producer and you've got the writer and you're all in one room and you've been going at it for hours and you're just shooting ideas back and forth and then something sticks. But you still have to find 10 more because you always need to have more ideas for the yeah. client to choose from. That's improv. Nine times out of 10, a scene doesn't stick. But the audience will always remember the couple of things that were memorable for them. So even if you have three bad scenes and one good one, they're going to remember the good one because it was true if you play it right. And, and yeah. that's how I teach as well. It's, it's okay to fail because no one cares. It's improv. You're, you're trying. But if you make it a big deal about having failed, like if, if a client says, I don't like this and you go, well, that I'm sorry. That's, I'm sorry you feel that way, but this is the right idea. You're not going to have an agency for very long or a job. 
And it's the same thing as improv. If the audience doesn't like it, your reaction should not be, well, they're not intelligent enough to get it. It's, yeah, they don't oh, get the junk. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it didn't work. Let's try this. Yeah. So maybe we can talk more about how you run the corporate workshops, because I think that's really interesting. And it's something that I would actually love to do here for my yeah. colleagues. I just need um, proper right of skills and tools to do it. Uh, give me an example of one of the physical games or the yes and games just to just to have it in the pocket if, if you want to if you want to do it. So one of my favorite uh, yes and games that I would say, especially when you're starting a workshop. So when I when I build corporate workshops, I tend to sit down with the manager or with, you know, with the member of the team and we we talk about what the goals are. So what is the manager trying to achieve? You know, is he feeling like the team is is not really connected? Do they just want to have fun? What what do they want to play with? And then we, we kind of rebuild it from there. And also what kind of, you know, what kind of personalities are there more introverted people? Are there really extroverted people? Are they people that have had acting experience before? You, you play around with that a little bit. My favorite though, and it's for all levels, is probably Action and Justify, where you have someone, and you can play this one on Zoom, which, which is helpful. You have someone do a gesture, any gesture, and their scene partner looks at them and they justify it. So if I was doing like this, mm -hmm. you might look at me and go, you do the most beautiful stretching. Right. And I might have thought I was shoveling, but you've seen it and seen something else and you're justifying my wild physical reaction. And then I have to respond equally to that and go, oh yeah, I've, I've been training for two months over Zoom. And you All just, right. and so it's it's action and justify. And you well, create nice. the scene in that. I love that. Actually, it'll be great if one day we can travel freely and then we can maybe you can come over and we can do workshops together, which would be super cool. I would love that. Is this something you still do at, at booking as well? It's not really part of your job. Or you do it um, a... It's not part of my job, but I have promised my team I'm going to run some some improv workshops for them. And it's also something that I still do freelance. So I still do it in, in at festivals or I will if we ever start them again. And I do occasionally run them on Zoom as well. And I would love, love to join you guys one day for a corporate workshop or just in general. If I ever get, if we ever get to travel again, I, I would love to. And, and thank you for having me. I hope more people understand that whether it's advertising or any kind of work, improv is something that just makes you a more flexible, more positive, more fun colleague. And, and that's never a bad thing. And I have one more thing to add to it, which is imagine or that is my wish that improv would be such an important tool in your cv as excel as powerpoint is because it says something about you it says something that you're an open-minded person that's ready you know to tackle the challenges it's flexible it's fun to be around it's just like chill and creative and, and that creative is well. integral to all acts of life but especially advertising Give a fuck. So, how to sum it all up? You might not agree with me when I say that advertising is a joke in itself. But the mutual things between the world of advertising and the world of drama, be it improv or stand-up, are for sure here. And as advertisers, we have a lot to learn from the world of comedy. It's about being ready for what's next. 
adapting quickly and knowing who you are talking to that make a good joke land as well as a good advert land. Moreover, being well versed in improv doesn't only benefit the work itself, but also the employee. The boost of healthy confidence, no fear of failure attitude and comfort to talk in front of many people can only help you be better at what you do. And that is why we should all be actors, really. Because in the end, life is nothing but a collection of little episodes that make up a movie where you play the leading role. And so, that is it, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to specifically thank Matt Box for taking time of his busy schedule to talk to us about his career in stand-up comedy and advertising, as well as to Jada Fogel, who walked us through the do's and don'ts of the improv theater. I very much hope so that you enjoyed today's episode Hope you leave us a feedback at giveafuck.net and until next time, keep giving a fuck. Give a fuck. Music courtesy of epidemicsound.com.